Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for being with us and worshiping with us this morning, and thank you for those who are listening in. Uh, I I think I I saw it's interesting on our YouTube section. Sometimes I think Rocky told me sometimes we get as many as sixteen, seventeen people that listen concurrently, and that seemed to they seem to pick that maybe more than the Facebook one. So, but anyway, uh, it's just a joy to be able to have um, people who are listening in too. And so I just want to acknowledge that. Um, so last fall, just as I begin this uh, this this morning's message. Last fall, we talked about um, a, a church ministry model. What, what is it, given our culture, given the circumstances we find ourselves in now, uh, what kind of model should we maybe pursue uh, in relationship to how we do ministry here? And, uh, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, uh, just by just so I can introduce what I'm going to be talking about a little bit later on in the service. But before I do that, maybe I should remind everybody also that last week we talked about a passage from Psalm 90, um, verses 12 through 17. And, uh, you know, as we oftentimes do in January, we kind of uh, make some resolutions about our life and about how we're going to use our time differently to improve our lives in some kind of a substantive way. And so I'm working through that list myself, and maybe next week I'll share that list with you. If you want to share your list next Sunday, you can share your list too. But um, And so I, I've been struck with how I've been spending my time. And so the two particular texts from that overall text would be these. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And so I ask the question, how do you intend to use the balance of your days that the Lord has given to you uh, for the rest of your life? What are you going to put into that? What kind of wisdom has God been speaking to you about? You know, what is the wise way to use the rest of your life? That's the thing about a life. You only get one. That's all you get. And, uh, and I noted that wonderful quote from Dag Hammarskjöld, we are, it is not ours to choose the frame of destiny that we have in life, but what we put into that frame is ours, belongs to us. And so you didn't get to choose, you know, where you were born and who you were born to and what gender you were and all those kinds of things. You didn't get to choose any of that. It was God's part of God's sovereign plan to make all that happen. That's the frame that you were born into. But how you live in that frame, how you live redemptively and what you put into that frame belongs only to you and me. It belongs to you. Yours belongs to you, mine belongs to me, and that is what we will be judged on, what we put into that frame. So then the psalmist concludes this section in the psalm, verse 17, by saying, let the favor of the, let the, favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us, yes, establish the work of our hands. 
Is that your prayer? Is that your deep and abiding sentiment? That you want God to establish the work of your hands that he has given to you? You want God to lead you and to guide you about what you're going to put into that frame that you have been born into? Is that is that your prayer, that you want God to establish that? So, with that in mind, then, uh, this is what I talked about last fall, and really, this whole series is designed to get at this very thing, this model that I think. And so, if we can go to the next slide. For 2,000 years, this is how the church operated. It was located within the center of a community, And because it was there, overall, there were some certainly ebbs and flows. But the church, on the whole, lived in the center of the community and people were attracted to it. Most of the people in Western civilization lived under the umbrella of the Christian world and life view. And so many people were just drawn naturally to the church. Not that the church didn't do some things to blow that up, because they did, but on the whole, that's how it worked. The church was the center of the community, and people were drawn to it. And so churches grew and flourished because of that understanding. And then, because we've lost largely the Christian world and life view, it's no longer a part of a dominant part of our culture. Anybody who thinks so, or, or you are deep in denial. Um, it is all but gone, and so it's been replaced by uh, a variety of ideologies and worldviews. Um, when I was growing up, when I was in college, we called it secular humanism. Today we call it progressivism, which is an even more toxic uh, uh, kind of secular humanism. And, uh, and so it manifests itself in a whole different bunch of different variety of ways. And so now the church has been pushed off to the side, into the margins. If I had a margin there, I would have pushed it into the margin because that's really where the church largely is, in the margin. And so you have all these different symbols here that represent the different world and life views that are very much an, a dominant part, increasingly, of our culture. And so how do we reach those people? What do we do? Because uh, in many respects, they get full sway in terms of how they exercise their worldview. But the church, it would seem, uh, has been um, suppressed in a lot of places. Uh, I was just looking at a meme that came across my Facebook uh, yesterday. And it showed a series of people who accomplished some phenomenal things like one was a boxer one was another kind of athlete another person accomplished some kind and as the reporter was interviewing them those those people in that meme were saying how they wanted to give thanks to their lord and savior jesus christ that was the original thing that they said but when it played on the news the lord and savior jesus christ was edited out so that you could not hear. So they say, well, I'd just like to be, you know, give thanks. Then there'd be a, a space and then they would start talking again. So there is that. And there is, a, you know, and, and look, there's, this is not a complaint. It's just a, this is the world that we live in. And so now we have to figure out a way 
to flourish in that. Not just for ourselves, but for people who are terribly lost, who do not know Jesus. They do not know the person that you know. They have not benefited from not only his salvation, but the abundance and the benefits that he brings to us when we live godly lives. And so how do we help people like that? Um, and, so, uh, and so my suggestion then would be this, that, you know, this is the church. And since people aren't drawn naturally to the church as they used to be, we have to be the church out in the world in which we find ourselves, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, with our relatives, in our, you know, uh, whether we, we are with a group of people who, who uh, we participate in hobbies together or whatever, somewhere in there are opportunities for us to be able to share and to convey Christ and the wonderful saving uh, message and knowledge of who Jesus is. So I'd like to describe that as everybody having their own little parish. You know, do you have your own little parish and do you know what that parish is? And do you know how you're going to leverage that parish as a means of um, increasing the talents that the Master has given to you? In that regard. And so I really want us during this series to be thinking about what parish has God called me to? I know that the Lord has called me to this parish, to this church here. And, and, um, and so I've been here for almost 18 years. And it has dominated every aspect of my life. It has, influenced every, it has influenced every major decision that I have made for 18 years. But even outside this church, I have my own other little parish. My neighborhood is my parish. A little part-time job that I have is a parish. The other relationships that I have with people outside the church, I include in my parish. And I can tell you honestly that I think, I try to think through almost every time I'm with people or I'm going to those people about the best possible way that I can live my life and look for opportunities to be able to tell them about Christ. So we are here, um, and uh, that's us. And um, you are here. You have your own little parish. Whether you realize it or not, God has arranged your life. We're going to talk about some biblical texts that, have to, that, that speak to that. But you are there. We can either embrace that or we can ignore it. It will never go away. It will always be a part of our frame that God has placed within us. Always. And then... With that being the case, when we look at the parable of the talents, and as I'm going to talk about in a few minutes, uh, the metaphor of the vine and the branches in John 15, the question becomes, how do I increase the talents that Christ has given to me in my parish so that whatever he's given to me, I've multiplied? How... 
can I produce fruit? Because if I'm abiding in Christ in my parish, then it necessarily means if Christ is in me, then Christ will be multiplied in me in the world in which I find myself and the little parish that he's given to me. I think it's vital that we all wrestle with this and come to some important conclusions about the nature and the quality of our lives in Christ. This really is exactly, in many respects, where the church kind of fails and drops the ball. And so we can't be that. We have to be different. Now I'm going to read this morning this text from John 15, verses 1 through 8, and then verse 16. Verse 16 is kind of the conclusionary passage of that whole segment there. This is not a parable. It's what you would call an extended metaphor. Um, so in fact, John doesn't contain any parables. All of the parables are found in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John does not have any parables. John focuses on things like the great I am statements, uh, the signs of Jesus, and things like that. So beginning with verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch... In me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them up and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. (coughs) Excuse me. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so that you will be my disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit. And that your fruit should abide, so that whenever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So in this little short series, Redeeming the Time, I want to spend some time on this text, because I think it speaks very powerfully, very poignantly, 
to this idea of production in the Christian life, using our time wisely, um, and, lead, and, and listening and hearing what God has to say about how we live our lives in the remaining time that he has given to us. Now, last week I spoke about the parable of the talents from Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. And, um, and so I left everybody here, I think, with the question, how faithful are we with what God has given us in terms of his time and resources? How faithful are we? Will we hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Will we here enter into the joy of your master? Will we here, I have entrusted you with a little, and now because you have been faithful with a little, I will entrust you with a lot. Will, be, will those be the three things that we hear God say to us when we leave this place and go on and to be with him in the next world? Will we hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Are you sure? Will we hear, enter into the joy of your master? And we all know what that's like. We all know what it's like to please a parent who has expectations of us we, maybe we meet those expectations and more, and they're very proud of us, and we enter into their joy because of what we've done. We've all experienced that, maybe not all of us, but many of us have experienced that with a coach, a teacher, a mentor, a person whose opinion of us is really important. And so when we do what they think we should do because it's a good thing. And we accomplish that. And not just accomplishment, but maybe we exceed at it. And then we hear, in essence, we hear them say, look, you did a great job with that. I am so proud of you. Let's just hang out together and enjoy what it is that you've done. Let's celebrate that together. And you know what? I just want you to know that because you did so well with that, that in the future, when there are even bigger opportunities, I want to make sure that you have those opportunities so that you can excel at those as well. Those principles are very much a part of all of our lives, have been and can be well into the future. So how faithful are we with what God has given to us in terms of time and resources? The other question I asked last week was how we use the gift of time and resources, uh, or I guess the statement, how we can use the gift of time and resources that, that, can, that can bring blessing as well as ominous consequences. So if we handle our time well, if we live our time with wisdom in an effort to give glory to God, if we amplify, if we build up, if we multiply what he has given to us so that um, 
he is glorified and his kingdom is advanced, then we are blessed. But if we don't, both the text in Matthew and the text in John are very clear. There are consequences. So, in particular, there are consequences for the unbeliever, and that would be eternal separation from Christ. For the believer, there are minimally, during the second judgment, there are consequences. Minimally. So, how do we want to stand before the Lord during the second judgment, where he rewards us according to what we have and what we have not done. Again, I, I am not trying to moralize here. I am not trying to make people feel guilty or anything like that. I'm just saying this is what the text says. And if this is what the text says, and these are the, the questions that we, we should draw from them, then let them challenge us. Let them drive us to become something more than what we already are. Let us be enamored with what it would mean to heighten our faith in Christ, our life in Christ, so that we can please him. And please him because we love him. And we appreciate what he's done for us. Now when we think about this particular text, there are some notables about the vine and the branches that I think are important before I start unpacking it for us here this morning. This vine and branches metaphor provides a very similar theme that we find in the parable of the talents. There's some similarities here. Here are some of them. There is an overarching authority. There is an overarching authority. There is the master in the parable of the talents, and then the vine dresser and the vine itself in the parable of the vine and the branches. So the master who dispenses the talents, and then Jesus identifies himself as the vine and his father as the vine dresser. So you have these two authorities in each of those texts. Then there's a designated purpose in, the, in that, the servants in the parable of the talents are to serve the master and to um, multiply what he has given to them. The designated purpose in the vine and the branches is to abide in the vine and to produce fruit. To abide in the vine and to produce fruit. That's the designated purpose. So the overt expectation for production is to increase the number of talents and the production of fruit itself. In both of these texts, there is blessing and there is judgment. (coughs) You have, in the parable of the talents, faithful servants who hear well done, the joy of the master, and even greater responsibility. In the metaphor of the branch, the vine and the branches, you have the branches that produce fruit and they are trimmed and they are harvested. And the branches that do not produce fruit, they are cut off and cast into the fire. 
So in, Ma- in, in Matthew's text, the, the, the servant that does not produce is cast into a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the, in the metaphor of the vine and the branches, the branches that do not produce are cut off and are burned. So I know, because I've done this, and I know because I've had many conversations about this, when we look at these texts, we tend to miss the ominous nature for those people, for those serve, that servant who did not perform well, we tend to miss the ominous um, ending of the branches that do not produce fruit. And these are the words of Jesus himself. So it should get our attention. It's that important. Gene and I were just talking back here a little while ago. <clears throat> The passage that he read from Ezekiel about the accountability that God has on the believer, the obligation that he's given to us to share our faith with others. And that if we have a clear opportunity to share our faith and we pass up on that opportunity when we know we should share our faith and that person dies in their sin, we are held accountable for it. So we were talking about that, and Gene said, well, it's, it's just not all about grace, is it? And uh, he is right. Look, if it was only grace and nothing but grace, then sin and judgment wouldn't matter. What makes grace relevant and important is the possibility of judgment. Does that make sense? Grace does not erase entirely the possibility of judgment. Grace happens instead of judgment because of a faithful response to Christ. Does this make sense to everybody? Look, and I said this to the AV crew back there. I said, after he got done reading, I said, that passage from Ezekiel would not be read in 80% of the churches in the United States. Wouldn't be read. Because people are too uncomfortable with how God holds us accountable about how we live our lives. It's not just about grace. Grace is only relevant because judgment is an ever present possibility. And the way that we obtain grace is by a faithful response to the work and the purpose of Jesus Christ in our lives. So when we read this passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, understand that in the first 14 chapters, John records, all, not all, but many of the teachings that Jesus had for his disciples and the people that he encountered. And so in a, a in a, in a progressive sort of way, small p, um, Jesus is teaching everybody what it is that they should do 
in order how they can live righteously before God. And then 15 really begins kind of the conclusion of John itself. And so in chapter 15 then, he's basically saying these are the things, this is one of the ways in which I want you to live. Now that you know all this stuff, this is my expectation of you. If you didn't know, I can't expect it. But now that you do know, this is what I want you to do. So after having taught comprehensively everything that he is, Jesus now describes what, he, what we are to be to him in life and action. To be in Christ necessarily means to produce fruit for Christ. To be in Christ, to abide in Christ, necessarily means to produce fruit for Christ. You cannot be in Christ without the production of fruit for Christ. If you look at the branch of any tree, let's say it's an apple tree. When you look at that branch, the only thing that branch can produce is apples. It doesn't produce pomegranates or figs or corn. It doesn't grow pigs. It only produces apples. So if there's a dearth of ministry in the world in which we live, then it necessarily means there's a dearth of people who are abiding in Christ. Can't escape it. You always do what you always are. So, Jesus then uses this powerful agrarian metaphor, the significance of which would be impossible to be lost on his hearers. Impossible. You can't miss the significance. There are three major agricultural crops in first century Judea and Palestine. Olives, grains, especially wheat, and grapes. These were universally known commodities and essential to life, comfort, and prosperity. They were essential. This agrarian metaphor that Jesus used dominated the everyday lives of the average Palestinian Jew. Dominated it. So when he's talking about how to care for grapevines and what the expectation would be for grapevines, everybody there would have said, would have, they would have, they would have, they would have bought into the significance. Did you ever see a vineyard before? You've seen vineyards, right? Do they take up a little bit of space or a lot of space? They take up a lot of space. Now, if none of those grapevines are producing, but you're using all of that space to grow something that doesn't produce, how foolish would that be? So the expectation would be that these grapes, these grapevines have to produce. And they only have to produce. If they don't produce, I could starve to death because I sell grapes and I sell wine. 
if these grapevines don't produce more than what I, you know, not just enough to feed me, but enough to provide some comfort. You know, there's all there's the basic needs, and then there's the comfort that comes with that, right? So if I do really well with my grapes, I can buy some extra things that can make our life easier. And if I do really, really, really well, I can be prosperous and I can sell some extra grapes and really get some kind of security that I couldn't have otherwise. So everybody there knew how powerful this metaphor would have been. So there's this very close association between food production, life, comfort, and prosperity. Now in this metaphor, there are three kinds of branches. Those connected to the vine that produce fruit. Those connected to the vine that do not produce fruit. And those who are not connected to the vine, really, in reality at all. So Jesus is addressing those three kinds of people. Now there are three kinds of fruit that's expected from this grapevine. Or from us. The multiplication of believers. Christ-likeness in character. And glorifying God through the establishment of his kingdom. I mean, remember in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the gospels that look similar, the driving theme in all three of those gospels is the establishment of God's kingdom. In other words, to make this world that we live in as much like heaven as we possibly can. That's... So, and I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, but many of the laws and the policies that have dominated Western civilization were derived as a part of the kingdom of God because it was a Judeo-Christian worldview that people lived in. And so they, were, they would say, well, what are the guiding principles about how we should arrange and organize our lives, how we should do government So they borrowed heavily from the Judeo-Christian worldview and they established in Western civilization especially certain aspects of the kingdom of God that made Western civilization really, really very distinct. Just, righteous, good. You've heard me speak about William Wilberforce and the Clantham sect in England. It was because of that group of Christians, they they derived something called child labor laws. We all hear the horror stories of how governments and businesses in other parts of the world treat their children. And how some children have to work 12 and 14 hours a day manufacturing things that will be sold here in this country. It was because of the Judeo-Christian worldview that we, we created things called child labor laws. 
so that in England and other parts of the world it was no longer legal to force seven and eight year old boys and girls down into the deep coal mine shafts where they spent 10, 12, 14 hours a day digging at very narrow veins of coal or where we weren't stuffing kids into chimneys and forcing them to go down and clean those chimneys because they could fit but an adult could not fit. That was the just and the right thing to do when it came to children. That's part of what it means to establish the kingdom of God. We have rigorous and some would say overly regulated business laws. Their origin came from the Judeo-Christian worldview. That was part of the fruit. This particular I am statement is one of seven I am statements. So years ago, uh, I think uh, Frank started coming to our church when I was doing the first I am statement series. How long would that be, Frank? About Twelve years. So I've not done this series since then. I've spoken on this text a bit, but not this series. But in this, in the seven great I am statements in the Gospel of John, there is this progressive development that end up with the production of fruit, abiding in the vine, and the expectation that because we do, we will produce fruit. So let's take a closer look at this particular text for a few minutes. Verse 1, if you have your Bibles. Jesus said, I am the true vine. Now, he says, I am the true vine, because throughout the Old Testament, Israel, Judaism, referred to itself as the vine. So Jesus is making a distinction here between him and the Israel of the Old Testament. The Israel of the Old Testament referred to themselves as the vine in a variety of ways. But Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to the people following him. And he's saying, I'm the true vine. I am not the vine of the Old Testament. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Now, that's literally the word vine dresser. If you have an NIV, the word is gardener. I think the NIV takes too much of a liberty there. It's, it's, it's more of a paraphrase. And sometimes they do that so that it makes it more readable. A gardener is a person who, has, who is responsible for a whole host of things in a garden, a variety of things. Um, and so in that way, maybe they're trying to convey the sense of God's sovereignty. I, I don't know. But literally the word is uh, vine dresser, and that is a particular person whose sole responsibility is to care for the vines, of uh, the grapevine, and to, and to work with them uh, in a way that they get the most out of it they possibly can. So there's this sort of folk, more of a focus in that regard. 
Another word some of your texts might have is husbandman. Uh, kind of an archaic word, but it, the, the word literally is vine dresser, a person who specializes in the care of grapevines. They specialize. They have sole control over what happens with those grapevines. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's the vine dresser. The person who's in charge of all of the vines. Any branch in me that does not bear fruit. Now, you know that we do this when we garden. If any of you grow tomatoes, you know that tomatoes, certain tomatoes have a thing on them called a sucker. And you know that if you want to enhance the production of your tomatoes, you pick those suckers off. Right? So that uh, more energy goes to the tomatoes. When you do that, you're like a vine dresser. Tomato vines, you're like a vine dresser. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. So, like, okay, well, I'm producing some fruit. Yeah, but you know, I think if I cut you back a little bit here, took this thing out, took that thing out, it would stimulate you to do even more. So sometimes God does work in our life. And sometimes it's not always painless, but it's painful. I'm sure that when you prune a branch, you're causing some kind of trauma. But when you prune that branch, then it produces still more branches. And maybe more energy goes to certain parts of the the fruit than what it would of otherwise. Suffering can be pruning. Suffering can be pruning. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear still more fruit. He is the vine dresser. He is sovereign. He is in control. He knows how to get as much out of us as we could possibly need. And maybe sometimes we're pruned because we weren't We don't want to deal with those things in our life that shouldn't be there. And so he takes them out. And we kind of want to hang on to them. But he says, no, if you have these things in your life, it's going to rob your ability to be able to produce more fruit. He goes on to say, you are already clean. And I'm assuming he's talking to the apostles here. You are already clean because of the word, that word logos, very prominently. You were already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So um, the word prune uh, in in verse 2. The Greek word is kathaero. The word prune is kathaero. The word clean is katharos. It's a play on words. So pruning and cleaning are are, are virtually the same. So when we are pruned, we are cleansed. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. 
As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, again, if you have the NIV, the word there is remain. It's a good word. Remain in me. Um, Be present in me. Live in me. In just this chapter, the word abide is used seven times. In just this chapter alone. John uses the word abide 35 times in the Gospel of John. I'm just making the argument about how important the word abide is to the whole of this text. That the only possible way to produce fruit is to abide. And John considers this word to be so important that he uses it in the whole Gospel of John 35 times. And if you go to all of John's literature, Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the book of Revelations, John uses the word abide 76, or 56 times. Interestingly, the dominant theme in all of Paul's literature is to be found in Christ. And that phrase, in Christ, in Paul's literature, all of Paul's epistles, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, all all of Paul's epistles. That phrase, in Christ, is found 76 times. I'm sorry, let me get my glasses on here. 87 times. But the word abide in far less literature is found 56 times in all of the work of John. It's disproportionate in a sense. But both mean virtually the same thing. To abide in Christ is almost the same thing as to be found in Christ. So now you have, you have uh, I mean, the two dominant forms of literature in the, in the New Testament are Pauline and Johannine. And in the two dominant forms of literature, the dominant theme is to abide and to be found in. I don't know. Does this make sense to you? I mean, that's how pervasive and that's how strong and that's how powerful what it means to be found in Christ is. (coughs) And from that then comes the capacity to imitate Christ and to produce fruit. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And so it kind of looks like this. Uh, Next slide, if you would. So you see the big uh, vine there to the right. It begins down to my right and your right. You see that big, thick uh, vine. Everything off of that is the branch. But because that branch is connected to that vine, it produces that kind of fruit. Who here wouldn't like to be underneath that branch and plucking at some of those grapes? It's a beautiful thing. It's glorious. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out, thrown away, 
would be another way to say it. The Greek word is balo. He is cast out, thrown away, and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. By the way, this is something the Jews in, in Palestine would have seen all the time. They would have been walking past a vineyard. They would have seen a vine dresser in there cutting stuff out. All the dead stuff, the stuff that was dying, taking a big bundle of it, throwing it on the side there, lighting it up and burning it. Everyone would have seen it. And after hearing this teaching, every one of them would have remembered that when they were going past the vineyard. Right? Wouldn't it make an impression upon you? Verse 7. If you abide in me, here's that word abide again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And I'm not talking about, he's not talking about, I don't know, you know, maybe I shouldn't pick on her. But remember when Tammy Faye Baker uh, was being interviewed and uh, the interviewer said, uh, like, you know, you're a Christian, but you live in this like opulent house and you have, you're dripping with jewels. You've got diamonds and all that kind of stuff. How, how is that consistent with what the Bible has to say? And, um, and obviously, I'm not saying it's wrong to own diamonds or to live in a nice house. But it just seemed as if what they were doing was like way over the top, you know. And so that's what the interviewer was saying. We're like, how do you? And so Tammy took this text from the book of Psalms and says, uh, and he will, Jesus, that God will give you the desires of your heart. So the desires of my heart were diamonds. And so that's why God gives me diamonds. because that's a, So he's a good God because he gives me diamonds. But that's not what this text is saying. The text is saying that if you abide in Christ, you will want the things that Christ wants. And so when you ask for those things, he will give them to you. If you want to produce fruit in your life, he will help you to produce fruit. He will teach you how to number your days all right and to live with a heart of wisdom. He will teach us that. Then verse 8, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will demonstrate yourselves to be my disciples. So two things are at play here. That when we produce fruit, we glorify God. When we produce fruit, we glorify God. We promote him. We call attention to him in a really good way. Other people see what we do and they glorify God. They may not even be Christians, but they glorify God because of the good works and the good fruit that they see in us. And when we do that, then we demonstrate ourselves to be his disciples. Not just believers, but disciples, learners, people who live under the submission of God. And then jumping to verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you. See, that's the thing. That's the rub. That we've been chosen and appointed. That's the frame of destiny that God has given to us. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. That your fruit should endure. It should last. It should live forever. You know, I'm going to do a funeral this this afternoon. I ask three questions in most cases when I do a funeral. 
just give me a couple funny stories that are legendary in your family about this particular person that we can just really enjoy their memory. That would be the first one. The second one is, what were they known for? What were, you know, were they were they were they were they a, a person who helped everybody? Did they make great chicken soup? What were they known for? And then number three, what is their legacy? What is something about their life that you admired and appreciated so much that you want it to be a part of your life, to live in your life, and to endure on beyond their life? Now, tragically, in too many funerals, many people can't answer the third one. But what will be your legacy in Christ? What will be mine? In Christ. What will be about our life that is so special, so compelling, that others who knew us, who live on, will want to continue the legacy that we had in our life in theirs? That's what's meant by this. That your fruit should abide, that it should endure, that it should live on. So Ephesians 2.10 tells us this, that we are designed by God to do his will and his work. Paul says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That you were appointed, and then Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, what God prepared beforehand for us to do. Have we connected with that? Do we know what work God has prepared beforehand for us to do? I have a few more texts like that, and maybe I'll share some of them next week. But really, what I hope that we take away from this powerful text is not I mean, look, where there's conviction from the Holy Spirit, great, but what really needs to happen is that we be inspired by it, motivated, that we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, that this church, this body, has a very clear understanding about what it is that God has appointed them to do, how it is that they're going to fill the remainder of their time, the nature in which they're going to give glory to God. That we are determined not just to do our duty as Christians, but that we desire because of thankfulness to do for Christ because of what he's done for us. Do you desire to do for Christ? Let the world out there see that in us. Let other churches see that in us. Not because we want them to see it, but because they can't help but see it. 